This morning, once again, we are in Philippians chapter 3. The letter of Philippians, beginning in chapter 3, verse 17. And if you're there, would you all stand? Here's the word of God. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Father, we come before you, before your word. Show us Christ. Reveal the word of God to us. Declare your truth to us. Convict us, correct us, train us, encourage us. That is what the Word is designed to do. Let the Spirit truly penetrate deep within our hearts. Reveal the real state, status, the truth, true nature of our heart. So that we can be right with you. So that we can walk in your, uh, in your way. So, Father, we thank you for our opportunity to stand before your word and receive your word. May our hearts be right, prepared to receive your word. And may we bear many fruit for you and for your glory. Be here with us, Lord. Bless us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you know, this past week we had some rain. And uh, my sentiment is always, you can use rain. Uh, you can always use rain, but if you are playing, I don't know, disc golf and whatnot, that's not the sentiment you share, <laughs> obviously. Um, and also, if you are the people in Louisiana, if you are the people in Texas, that's not the sentiment you like to hear. You can, use all, you can always use rain. I mean, after Hurricane Ida, Tropical storm uh, Nicholas uh, ravaged through some parts of Texas and Louisiana. Uh, they're really having it rough, especially Louisiana. Now, for times like that, with hurricane, flood, high wind, all of those things are the reason why we have insurance. Right? That's the reason why you and I have insurance, is we have car insurance. So in case of natural disaster or in case of the, in the event of an accident, you have security, right? Measure of security in place. You also have home insurance, right? 
Uh, it gives your family a peace of mind uh, in the event of uncertainties of fire, death, or all these natural disasters. Some of us have health insurance, right? It gives us protection over uh, disease or sickness or accidents that we endure. Um, some of us have life insurance. Uh, if you are in 20s and 30s, life insurance is not what you really typically want to spend your money on. But when you get to 40s and 50s, you become husband and father and children. You know, this is something that you'd actually think about. Why? In case of your sudden death, uh, your family will be taken care of, right? So you have life insurance. So all of these insurances are our attempt to um, safeguard against all kinds of possibilities. And those are not pleasant possibilities. These uh, unpredictable, devastating possibilities. And we want to safeguard ourselves and our loved ones from these possibilities in life. But the most uncertain, the most devastating, most unpredictable, disastrous possibilities exist not in this, in this world, in this physical world, but it exists in the spiritual world, in the eternal realm. So just as we want to safeguard against all disasters in this world, all kinds of different disasters, we must also safeguard ourselves, not only ourselves, but our loved ones from this uh, devastating, disastrous a possibility that may come for the coming ages in the eternal realm. We need to safeguard ourselves and loved ones for our eternal security. How do you do this? How do you safeguard and have yourself and loved ones ensure for eternity? If you believe in the Bible, how do you make sure we do that? The answer we had, most of the questions in church ends with, if you're not so sure, you blurt out Jesus Christ most of the time. It happens to be right. You know, you can beat Sungjae in these quizzes. Just raise your hands. It's Jesus Christ. Right? How do we safeguard ourselves for what is to come in the ages? How do we safeguard ourselves for eternal security? Jesus Christ, He is the answer. In Jesus and in His gospel, the good news, He saves lives. Not only He is, He saves lives, not only He ensures us, He is not only the insurance, He is the perfect insurance, ultimate assurance. Jesus is the ultimate um, guarantee for our eternity. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the way we live, way of life. So without the gospel, without Jesus Christ, what we are walking into in eternity is without hope, without protection, without salvation, without eternal security, forever lost for all eternity. And our only answer is Jesus, only Jesus. So if you come to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, then you got to know and you got to believe 
that you have eternal life. You profess your faith in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and he died and paid for your sin, resurrected, and is up in heaven and coming back again. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you know that to be true and you profess with your mouth, your words, then you know that you are saved, you have eternal life, you are secure. But not only that, what that means is that you are not the people of this world. The moment you know and believe and you profess that Jesus is Christ, Jesus is the Lord, what happens to you is you become a child of God. You are the people of God. But you are people, not eventually, right? We talked about this many times, and I'll repeat this. It's in me, and it's an important part of Christian walk, the how I read the Bible. You are a child of God. You are part of God's kingdom. Not eventually, but you are already one. Just not yet there yet. But as you live here on earth, you are already a child of God. You already live like a people, a person in the kingdom of God. Already, but not yet. But you are one here right now. Christians are the citizens of heaven. We are the people of heaven, his kingdom. We're not of this world, this earth. We're not citizens of this great uh, 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 United States of America. We are, but we're not. We are of this, living in this place, but we're not of this place. And that's why Bible Paul would say, you are a traveler. You are sojourners. You live here temporarily, but your home, your citizenship, your real place is up in heaven. And you live for the king right now, right here. What we have in this passage is Paul's way of illustrating that. This is why... Uh, he's going to introduce vastly two different citizens from two different worlds. He's going to explain and, and uh, illustrate that. And Paul's intention out of this is quite simple, urging the Philippians to live as citizens of heaven rather than citizens of the earth. Now, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago maybe, Philippians, um, they are Roman citizens. Philippi uh, was a Roman colony. It's an outpost. So that means uh, the people in Philippi were Roman citizens. They're away from Rome, but they are Roman citizens. And because they are Roman citizens, they, are, they were governed by Roman law, and they practiced uh, Roman customs. They follow closely Roman traditions. So if Rome, Romans from Rome travel to Philippi, and they spend a week there, or they uh, have a vacation there in Philippi, they will feel right at home. They will not feel the difference. And they do that, Philippians would do that, because they are proud of this citizenship they have. You are a citizen of this powerful empire known to men at this point. And you have that piece of paper, literally, that tells you that you are a Roman citizen. 
and in his prize, prize uh, uh, piece of paper that comes with privilege, comes with protection, but it also comes with responsibility, and they they live up to that responsibility because it's it means so much to them. But to them, Paul would say these words. You hold this so high. You think the Roman citizenship is so great, so awesome. It, it is. How do I know it? Because I am a Roman citizen. Himself, Paul was a Roman citizen. And he is not downgrading or just saying this is not much of a great value. No, he himself has one. He himself is a Roman citizen. And he says, you think that's great? I'm going to tell you something greater. Better. Something that is higher than citizenship, that of Rome, which is citizenship. Being a citizen of heaven. And he is going to challenge Philippians. If you live up to this Roman law, Roman tradition and custom, because this citizenship is so valuable, so dear to you, I'm going to challenge you. Because this is there is a greater citizenship. And if you understand this citizenship, then you have to live. The way you live should affect here and now how you carry yourself because you are, in fact, the citizens of heaven right here, right now. If Roman citizenship affects you now, your citizenship of God's kingdom of heaven in Jesus Christ should affect you even more. That's Paul's point here. And he's going to make some remark in this passage. And his intention is to caution them, warn them, because it is, it is possible, it is easy for you to fall into this temptation and trap to live like the people of this earth. Not live like citizens of the heaven, but live like the citizens of earth. And he would say, it's even possible and it's happening because even amongst professed Christians, this is happening. Even in the church, this is happening. We value the citizenship from Rome more important, more valuable than the citizenship that comes from God. And the way we live, how we conduct ourselves, the manner in which we live in Jesus Christ will reveal your true citizenship. Which kingdom, which world you truly belong to. And he is going to make a case and ask, which world do you belong to? And that is his intention out of this passage. Before we get into the two uh, distinctly, vastly different uh, citizens from the two worlds, this is something that we need to understand. This letter was written to the Christian, to the church, right? And yet, here's a sad part of this passage. Sad truth in verse 18. This is what Paul says. In verse 18, he says, Many of them... Walk as what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. These people walk, live, 
conduct themselves as the enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people who are already in church, who had fellowship with them, with the church, yet they live their lives like they are the enemies of the cross, enemies of what Jesus stands for, what enemies of what he has done by dying, by resurrecting, enemies of the gospel. Apparently, they knew who these people were, the men and women. Notice that in verse 18, that this is not the first time Paul was addressing about these people, the enemies. When he said, I have often told you, Paul says, I told you this before, and I'm going to tell you with even with tears. He is repeating this warning to these people and about these people who live their lives among them as the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And even with tears, he is talking about them once again who claims to be Christian but they stand against the cross. How is that even possible? Who are these people? We would like to know, but there is no way for us to know within the context in chapter 3 and 4. Uh, Paul does not directly talk about this. But in the Acts or the other letters, you can assume there's a couple possibilities. We don't know how these people infiltrated the church or how these people were turned as enemies of the cross. But what we do know is at this time, the church was always under attack with two very different groups. Two different groups. The one is known widely as Judaizers. They come from Jewish understanding. They still hold on to Jewish traditions. So they are very, um, they put their emphasis on legalistic ascetic practice. In other words, uh, here are the laws, here are the Ten Commandments, here are the traditions and customs. Yes, we place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, but as Jews and as the culture where Jesus was born and grew up and he held highly, we also need to abide by this. Like you put that all the way to the same level as what Jesus has done up on the cross. Like if you don't perform and keep up with your responsibility, if you don't obey these things, if you don't circumcise your son or you yourself don't be circumcised, Judaizers will say, hey, that salvation is not good. You have to live up to it. They would emphasize these things. And, and the church was always under attack from the, this particular group. And there was another group. And then they are polar opposite, just completely different from their approach. And this group will come out and emphasize the grace of God. They're going to emphasize freedom of God. And they're going to talk about freedom and grace so much so to the point that it sounds and acts like it is a license to sin. It sounds like it is a freedom and grace even from God's own commandments. Their mantra, if I may use my own words, it would go like, do what feels right. Do what feels like. 
Christ freed you. Christ saved you. He wants you to be happy. Enjoy this freedom. Live your life. Do what is pleasing to your eyes. These group of people still exist in our church today. In our contemporary church, we have these two groups still waging war against the church. Now, this particular group that may be Paul, what Paul was alluding to, may be this group that is emphasizing grace and freedom. And I'm going to explain that to you. But these people teach saving faith does not result in life of holiness. These people emphasize grace and freedom in Jesus Christ that the life of a pursuit of righteousness, and they will labor that as work. Since Jesus' death paid for uh, believers' sins of past and present and future, I do not know, like the passage we just read in James chapter 1 and 2, how do you reconcile what James said with this freedom and, and uh, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? There has to be a balance. If you lean on one side over the other, that's where we fall. And that's where the enemy entertain us all the time. But here, Paul, on the other hand, he will come out and just clearly label them. It's not the matter of how you really uh, uh, profess to be. But Paul will say, this is how you live. It's about living your life. And the way they lived their lives caused, caused the apostle to label these people inside the church to be the enemy of Jesus Christ. That's a big label. Big accusation has eternal consequences. Right? And we're going to look at four characteristics Paul talks about it in verse 19. What did they do and how did they live their lives to the point that if the apostle will literally give this eternal death sentence to these people? That, that kind of label is eternally damning label for you to receive. Verse 19, Paul says, first, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Now, this first one sounds not so much like characteristic, to be honest. But it sounds like ultimatum, where they're going to end. If you continue this on, this will be your sure end, destruction. And when he says destruction, and when he says the end, this is the end, ultimate end, the end of all things. And this destruction, obviously, is eternal destruction, eternal punishment. And this is not some temporal judgment that God will punish you so that uh, you will get things right. This punishment, this, this uh, destruction really is uh, what we read from Revelation, the last day. People will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will endure this pain, this pain and suffering for all eternity. And this is the cause 
This is the ultimate re, uh, 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 consequence of their willful rejection of God's grace, their twisted view of grace of God, freedom in Jesus Christ. Instead of using that grace and inspired by His love and this power to transform their lives, sanctify their lives, and be more like Jesus Christ, they would use Jesus' grace and love as license to do what they pleased. Second characteristic. Paul says their God is their belly. That's an interesting way to put it. This is your God. Your God is your tummy. In other words, your God is your appetite. What does that mean? It means that they live for their own appetite. They live for their selfish, sensual pleasures, their desire. They live for that. Their God is their desire. Which is complete opposite of what we shared last Sunday. Rather than Denying, rejecting, considering all the things that you have worked for, accomplished for, whatever you uh, accumulate over the years, you're going to look at it and you're going to look at it as nothing, as trash for the sake of Jesus Christ, knowing Him, gaining Him, to be found in Him, to love Him. But these are your gods. You can't turn away, but you're going to embrace not only embrace, you're going to live for it. Your God is your belly. The third characteristic, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. This is shocking because they boast in their supposed freedom, their twisted view of the cross, so that the very things that brought shame in their lives, right? They felt shame, but then after they they are going to boast about their shameful things that they have done. This is so shocking because they now exalt themselves and, 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 and be proud of themselves in their wretched conduct before God. And what they're going to do, they're going to justify their wrongdoings, the shameful act they have done before God. And because of this understanding of freedom and this grace, they're going to excuse themselves and they would even attempt to redefine whatever they have done, this shameful act in the eyes of God to be okay. And not only okay, they will promote that to the other Christians. It's okay. God understands. They have no shame. And there is no fear of God. They glory in their shame. It's not like Pharisee, I thank God for me. God, I thank you for me. Versus the tax collector beating his heart, can't even look up to heaven and just beating because he knows he's unworthy even to be in the presence of God and pray to God. Because he knows what he has done. He is shameful, not prideful of what he has done, who he is. They glory in their shame. Characteristics of the enemy, the cross of Christ. Finally, they set their minds on earthly things. 
They set their mind on earthly things. Now, don't get me wrong. We need earthly things. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a, a father of three. I need earthly things to, to uh, fulfill my uh, duty as a father, as a husband, right? So that means I have to diligently put our, my time and effort to earn these earthly things to provide for my family, these earthly wages. So, is earthly things, I mean, are, are they bad? No, that's not bad. But the point, what Paul is trying to make is this. How much of earthly comforts, how much of earthly security, uh, 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 earthly uh, happiness, these earthly things will you work for at the cost of heavenly things, things of Jesus Christ? At the expense of knowing Christ, at the expense of having Jesus Christ, loving Him, going after these heavenly things. You know, when earlier Paul said, oh, those of you who are here, I got something for you. And then, oh, no, it's in heaven. And Sean says, what did you say? He said something. Hundredfold where? In heaven. Oh, okay. <laughs> Look, what you do for the name of Jesus Christ, what you provide for the servant of God, and, and the, the Bible says your reward will be stored in heaven. You are investing in heaven for all eternity. That's what, what this life is about. At the expense of eternity, Will you put your set your mind on earthly things? Because if anyone loves the money, if anyone loves the things of this world, if anyone loves the people of this world, as we looked at, is it possible for you to love the Lord? Nearly impossible. Yet these people, right off the bat, Setting their minds on Christ is the furthest thing from their mind. And they set their minds on earthly things. And they make no qualms about it. They're not shameful. They don't hide it. They set their minds on earthly things. And when you interact with these people, you will never know that they would even attempt to set their mind on the things above willfully, purposely for the work, for the, for the glory, for the praise, for Jesus Christ to be magnified in your life. Setting our minds on Christ, setting our minds on the things above, sounds awesome, sounds great, but it is a lifelong battle that you and I have to wage on. Putting this down and holding it high. Now, what about these people? Other side. These citizens of heaven. These people who live for God, for uh, be part of the kingdom right here, right now. How do they live? Paul tells us three things that will clearly distinguish, 
clearly set them apart. First thing in verse 17, the citizens of heaven humbly follow the godly examples. Citizens of heaven follow humbly these godly examples. Paul says here in verse 17, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate me. Copy me. Follow me. Now that's a that's a tall thing to say, right? I don't I don't know what level of Christianity and, and piety I have to uh, achieve in order for me to clearly, without uh, any reservation, to say that to you. Copy me, follow me, imitate me as your elder, as your pastor, because it could come off uh, really like an arrogant statement, prideful statement. Really. Really? You can say that? Copy my life? Imitate me? It, it could just view as uh, something really very arrogant and prideful. But here's the thing about Paul. If we understand Paul's life and what we just went through in the first three chapters up to this point, if you were there and you listened to his words, when he says, imitate me, I don't think the pride, the arrogance would be uh, the first thing you will receive. You're not going to have that thought when the guy who said, I have not arrived yet. I am not perfect. I'm still working on it. This is the guy who gave his life. Went through three different shipwrecks. He was murdered and they thought he was dead and tossed him in the pile. And he walked, you know, got up and walked back into the town and preached the gospel. That guy says, I am not there yet. I'm still beating my body to obey the Lord. I am the biggest sinner. Those are the things that Paul shared, declared to his own disciples and Christians, right? And when he goes and tells you, that guy, not me, but that guy tells you, copy me, imitate me. Pride or arrogance would be the furthest thing in your mind, I guarantee you. What should we learn from Paul? You know, he's my hero. He, you know, my, you know, who's your favorite uh, superhero? My kids would ask. And I'll always say Batman. Batman has no superpower. No, but he can beat everyone. <laughs> That's what I say all the time. <laughs> My Christian superhero, Apostle Paul. He's it. He lived a life. He, what are the qualities I love about him? Think about it. He, he, he has unmatched, undying passion and love for the Lord. Zeal and passion that is second to none. And he has this uncompromising determination. He will not negotiate. He will not compromise. And he has this relentless, relentless commitment to the Lord, to the calling that he received. He doesn't walk away. It's not because he is fully capable. Even if he falls, even if he makes mistakes, you know what? The calling is so great and I'm by the fact that you call me, I'm going to get up again and I'm going to fulfill your calling. Commitment. How can you not imitate this guy? And when he says, imitate me, you're going to say, ah, okay. You, you turn me off. Sounds very arrogant. 
Guys, that's the last thing. Paul says, imitate me. Imitate my mistake. Imitate how I got back up. Imitate how I put, my, put the Lord first. Imitate how I walk away from these. Imitate how I magnify the Lord and nothing else come close to Him. Imitate. Follow me. You know, when you learn something new for the first time, whether it is playing a sport or an instrument, the best thing I believe for you to do is imitate something. Right? If you were learning basketball, if you weren't good, I wasn't good, and, and you just sit there because you're not being picked, right? And you watch. You watch they, how, how they shoot. Watch how they move their feet, where they stand, where they pick their spot, and you learn. You learn. You watch NBA games on TV. You just don't watch. You learn, and you copy, you know? Back in my generation, not, you know, LeBron James or Kobe Bryant, my thing was be like Mike. Michael Jordan, be like Mike. You wear his Jordan where you drink getaway, uh, you fade away, you, you know, when you drive, you have tongue sticking out. Why? You want to be like Mike. That's the best way to learn anything. You guys watch, you know, those of you into disc golf, you watch pros. You watch how they putt. You watch they, how approach their, you know, mid, mid shot, the, you know, approach shot, or whatever you guys. You, you pick their brain. You copy them. You imitate them. Why? Because that's the best way to learn. Because you're not going to invent something new out of yourself because you're not there yet. You didn't experience this. Same thing here. Do you know how to walk with the Lord? Do you know what it means to abandon and forsake all things for the sake of having Christ in your life? Do you know how to live your life as kingdom citizen, as a child of God? Paul says to his dear, he says, your joy, you're my crown. I, I long for you. I will die for you. Imitate me. Copy me. This is the effective method. And what that means for us is that you need to have, as for you to walk as citizens of heaven here and now, you've got to have a spiritual mentor. You've got to have spiritual hero. It could be Paul. It could be Peter. It could be Lord Jesus himself. Or you could have um, someone in your life that you could talk about spiritual things who would hold you accountable. But here's the thing. For you to have spiritual mentor, for even Spirit of God to mentor you, you know what you got to have? You got to have humility. Humility. In other words, you got to be teachable. You got to be teachable. I can teach Justin the way he wants to be and shoot his basketball if he wants to be so uh, stubborn about the way he does that. He's not going to learn. There's no way I'm going to be able to teach him. Unless he finally, I school him very long time, and I make all the shots, and he misses, and he finally goes, okay, so how do I shoot? 
unless you're teachable, you're not, you, no matter how many mentors you have, it's not going to matter. The first thing you got to have, if you're going to imitate someone, this is a part of the thing we're reading into this, but this is it's so important. You got to be humble, teachable, make yourself open for your mentor's correction. You got to explain, you got you to gotta lay yourself down. No walls, no veils, you make your life transparent. Why? Because it is that much important. You walk as the citizens of heaven. It's so much important that there is no pride. You humble yourself and you come before. And this is where I believe the church membership is so critical. This is where church membership comes into play. Because church membership is not only clearly defining your responsibility and our church leader's responsibility, the church's responsibility. But more important thing, the most important thing about church membership, the covenant, is for you to clearly define in whose authority you are submitting to. You're clearly submitting to the authority of the church. And when you clearly define who is authorized to correct me, and guide me, feed me. It's so important. It's not about you are authorizing human beings. When you get under and you submit to humbly authority of the church, you are submitting to the authority of the head of the church, which is who is Christ. If you do not submit, if you don't have someone to mentor you, oversee you, guide you, how could you be so sure that you will never fail, you will never make mistakes, you will never go, go astray? That's where the church membership comes from. You have mentors. You have dear brothers and sisters praying for you. Now, once again, Paul says, imitate me. And also, look at those people. And if you see examples, that you see in us, Paul, Timothy, Silas, uh, uh, Barnabas, these leaders of the church, follow their example. Follow their example. Citizens of heaven humbly follow godly examples. Second characteristics. The citizens of heaven actively await for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They actively wait for the Lord's return. Verse 20, Paul says, the citizens of heaven hope for the Lord's return. Now, this is one of the repeated emphasized truth in the New Testament. Bible trivia, how many books in the New Testament? Oh, 27, yes. Yeah. 27 books in the New Testament. You know how many times, how many out of those 27 books talks about uh, having this hope of the return of the Lord. Anticipate for the return of the Lord. Out of 27 books, 23 books. It is repeated over and over and over because the Lord himself, right before he went up to heaven, this is what he promised. And this is something that we believers have to uh, be hoping and waiting. Important for the citizens of heaven. Now, why is this important? Having this hope of the Lord's return, why is this Important. If you are anticipating the Lord's return, you're not going to, you know, just 
hang out and chill and receive the Lord. There is anticipation. You haven't seen your significant other. You haven't seen your husband or wife for, for a month. What do you do with the anticipation of meeting, reuniting with your loved ones? What do you do? You clean the house. You, you ha- get a haircut. You put a best makeup and bet, you know, uh, uh, you know, nice clothes, and then you go and pick that person up. And you have a wonderful time. Why? You love that person. He or she means so much to you. So in that anticipation, what do you do? You prepare. You prepare yourself for that meeting. How you prepare tells a lot about your love, your dedication, your devotion for that person. This is hope. And this hope caused the people to take necessary anticipatory steps, preparation towards receiving the Lord. So therefore, this hope is both condition as well as motivation to live as the citizens of heaven right here, right now. Paul says, if you do, when the Lord comes, when? It's not if, it's a matter of when. When he comes, what happens to you? He will transform your lowly body into his glorious body, heavenly body, and no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. You will have this power that raised him from death. You will reign with him. The author of salvation will complete your journey. Perfect your salvation. No more temptations, no more sin. That hope will cause you to anticipate, cause you to prepare. You are, if you are citizens of heaven, that hope is critical in your life. Finally, verse four, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Citizens of heaven stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. We stand firm in the Lord. He just wants to stand. He, he wants us to stand. Ephesians 6 in the armor of God, at the end, he wants to, with all that gear, stand firm. Why? He doesn't want you to march into the gate of hell, gates of hell, uh, march against the uh, enemy into the battle, but we stand firm on the truth, on Jesus Christ, in his word. What happens is he already won the battle, right? The death is beaten. He is fighting the losing battle. So what we do in our battle against our enemy is to maintain the victory Christ has already gained for us. In our spiritual warfare, we do not need to fight to obtain our own victory. But what we do is we stand and rejoice and we uh, root ourselves in Jesus Christ in the victory that he has already won. We just simply need to hold on to him. That means Jesus is our everything. He's our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. He's our salvation. He's our all in all. He is sufficient for our every need. He's our rock foundation. He's our refuge in times of trouble. As we sing, I mean, where else would you go? Where else would you go? 
Where, will, where else would you rather be? That's a sentiment in John chapter 6. Where else would you go? You need Jesus Christ. You need eternal life. Where else? Stand firm. Now, how do you stand firm? What does that mean for you? How do you stand firm? Okay, I get that. But how do you stand firm? As Christ follower, as disciples, it means we stand firm, unwavering determination. You unwaver. You don't move because of the outside pressure, because of the temptation. You don't give in. That means you stand firm. You do not, you do not deny the Lord. You do not break His heart. You stand firm. What does it mean? It means to stand firm in the truth, in the word. Big battle about abortion. It's going on. State level, um, federal level. Uh, it, it's going to go up to Supreme Court. Um, Attorney General sued the state of Texas because of the uh, new abortion law. Now, I don't have to abide by human law or the law of this country. What you and I had to abide by, live by, is the law of God. Stand firm means you stand firm on the law, the truth, the word of God. That's how you stand firm. It also means you need to obey, remaining in his word. How do you remain in Jesus Christ? Remaining in his word, obeying in his word. That's what it means to stand firm. How do you stand firm? Not to trust yourself, but trust the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. If you remember, that was my very first time addressing you, preaching to you. Do not trust yourself. Do not lean on your own understanding. But lean on God, on His wisdom, on His knowledge. Finally, if you are going to stand firm in the Lord, remember your promise you have made. Remember your promise. Keep that promise. That's how you stand. How do you make your marriage strong? How do you make your relationship strong? The words, the promise you made, keep them. Keep them. Keep your words. It's simple as that. Stand firm in the Lord. Keep your profession, the promise you made to the Lord. Abide by it. Keep it. Folks, are you a citizen of heaven? Or are you a citizen of the earth? Right here, right now. Because the way we live here on now tells a lot about which world you live for, which kingdom you belong to. That's the text we have. And this, once again, sad truth written to the church. This is written to the Christian. Inside the church, enemy exists. Inside the church, who would emphasize the work over the freedom and grace. And there are church people uh, who would enjoy and emphasize grace and freedom more so than the holiness and righteousness. Who are we? How do we live? Do we live by these characteristics Paul laid out? Imitate, copy, 
some of the godly examples that you see. Humble, submit yourself to their care and love for you. Have that person available in your life. And listen humbly. Have this hope for Lord's return. And that hope will help you prepare. And stand. Nowhere else. Nothing else. In Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's take a time just to uh, just pray for our understanding of the word and our response. Make that prayer in your own word. What you just realized. What the apostle um, just desperately urging his friends, his joy, his crown, his beloved uh, brothers and sisters. What do we understand? Which world do we belong to? How do we live there, our, our lives? May the Spirit reveal the truth and bless you. Will you take a moment to pray to your Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray for my dear brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, people whom I love and care for. As Paul would say, they are my joy, they are my crown. Lord, that's, these are the people that you entrusted to me. And as we share this word, Lord, will you help us to walk, look into our lives, the manner of our walk with you. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we're, we're completely, perfectly ensured, safe for all eternity. If we know and believe what Jesus has done on that cross, that's who we are. And we live like one, even though we may uh, be not yet home in heaven with you. But we live our lives like kingdom citizens, as a child of God here on earth, right now, right here. Thank you for the opportunity that we had to examine our walk. Help us to live like our citizenship with you from your kingdom means a lot more than anything this world can offer to us. Help us to, Lord, imitate our godly, godly examples in our lives. Humbly, uh, may we open ourselves to receive their um, care and wisdom for the Lord, even the Spirit to work in our hearts. May we be teachable for you to shape us and mold us. Father, we thank you for your promise that your Son will return to uh, bring us back home. And if we truly love you and long to see you, will you remind us each and every day that hope will inspire us, anticipate the Lord's return in preparation to receive our, um, our Lord. Father, may we stand firm in you, in your word, in your truth. Not, on, not leaning on our own understanding, but Lord, rather in your word and for your guidance, for your leading in the Holy Spirit. Father, bless your people whom I love 
and long for. My joy and crown, Lord. May you be with them. May you go with them and protect them, go before them, Lord. Bless their hearts as they bear uh, your name and bear your fruit, all to magnify and glorify your name wherever they may be. Lord, be with them and utilize them. Further your kingdom through their lives. Father, I thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name.